Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. In Israel, in the Holy Land, in Samaria, the northern parts, there is a city called Shechem. It's a, a city that is situated between two mountains, Mount Gerizim on one side and Mount Ebal on the other. And in this place, Shechem, tradition says that the patriarch Jacob dug a well, a well that continued in use till Jesus' day, so that one day when Jesus found himself traveling through Samaria, he went to the well and he had a conversation with a Samaritan woman uh, at that well. And she asked him a question. This is in John's Gospel, chapter 4. She asked him a question concerning worship. In Samaria, the tradition was to worship in the north, to worship in the high places of the north. But of course, in the southern kingdom, everyone said you have to worship in Jerusalem. So there was this division between what had been a united people. So having this wise man, this rabbi here at her disposal, this woman at the well decides to pick his brain to find out who's right in this religious controversy. It's a great opportunity. If I had the chance to encounter Jesus at the watering hole, there are all sorts of religious disputes that I would like to get him to weigh in on so that I could come back and say, actually, Jesus said I'm right and you're wrong. You know, imagine, imagine what that would be like. So she poses in the question. She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. That's one tradition. And yet you people say that we should worship in Jerusalem. That's another tradition. How could she reconcile these two traditions? How could she find what the answer is? It's a dilemma that is not unusual to her or to her day. It's one that we still struggle with when there are so many different traditions of faith, so many different claims about how you should worship, where you should worship, what it should look like. All of those things are constantly being disputed. And wouldn't it be nice to be able to say, so Jesus, uh, Presbyterian or Baptist, what do you think? You know, liturgy, not liturgy? Are you more, you know, sermon manuscript or just shoot from the hip? What do you think? Here's the opportunity to ask Jesus to resolve the question. I want you to think, how do we resolve these questions? If we don't happen to be at a well and meet Jesus, how do we get answers to these things? How do we find out how to answer these really important questions. The answer to that question turns out to have a little bit to do with the place where it's being asked. Because this place where this well is, is not, it's not a random location. The city, Shechem, the surrounding mountains, there's a history to these places, a history that has shaped the people who live there. And if we understand a little bit about the people Who've, who've been to this place, Shechem, we start to see how we might answer the question, who's right? What are we to believe? What ought we to do? Shechem had a significance. Speaking of patriarchs, you go back behind even Jacob, the very first Abraham. When Abraham was called out of Ur, the Chaldees, and sent to the promised land, the first place he reached, according to the scripture, is Shechem. This was his first footfall. And so he did what God commanded him to do. He built an altar there. And in Genesis 12, God gives a promise to him in this place. He says, 
your offspring will inherit this land. This land will be theirs. So the promise we've been talking about, this act of Israel and entering into the promised land, it all goes back to this place. This place, Shechem, where Abraham received that promise. Jacob, as I mentioned, returned to it later. He built an altar there as well, probably rebuilt the altar that Abraham had built. And this must be the time that he dug his famous well. Even after the time of the patriarchs, this was an important site. So much so that Moses, when he was giving his final instructions to the people before his death in the book of Deuteronomy, when they were still on the other side of the Jordan, Moses said, when you cross, when you go in and you take possession of the land, what you need to do is go to Shechem. You need to go to this place and you're going to hold this this covenant renewal ceremony. And he gives elaborate instructions on how it's to be done, how everything should be arranged. So Moses, even though he won't be there, he gives the instructions to the people, go to this place and here's what you should do before the face of God to renew this covenant promise that he has made. So now at the end of Joshua chapter 8, Joshua basically fulfills the command that Moses gave him. The people have now come into the land. They crossed the Jordan. They defeated Jericho. They struck out further. They overcame Ai. Along the way, they overwhelmed other enemies that aren't mentioned in the text. And at this point, they kind of strike out to the north and seize the north of the promised land by by taking this place, this central important place that connects them all the way back to the covenant promise that they are acting upon. And so in Joshua 8, we hear the description of what took place there, this this ceremony of renewal. As you listen to the text, I want you to keep a couple of things in mind. This was a structured worship service. It had a liturgical character to it, which you can see in our text briefly and in much more detail if you go back to Deuteronomy 27, where Moses gives the instructions. He gives very minute instructions about who's supposed to stand where, who says what at what time. This is structured. This is, uh, it's, it's a little bit like what we do now in worship. So see this as a worship service. So here's what we read in the text. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written, and all Israel. Sojourners as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read 
before all the assembly of Israel, and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. So that's that service of covenant renewal. Later in the book of Joshua, when we get to the end to chapter 24, we'll come back to this place and we'll have another, at the end of the conquest, service of covenant renewal. And at that time, the bones of Joseph that have been brought back from Egypt will be buried in this place. You can see that this is an important place. If you had difficulty picturing this scene as we went through it, let's just take a moment to uh, map it out in our minds what's taking place here. So we have uh, two mountains. We have Ebal and we have Gerizim. Between them, there's a valley. And geographically, it forms a natural amphitheater. In fact, Francis Schaeffer calls this place God's own amphitheater. It is here in this place that he gathers his people. Uh, when I say amphitheater, what I mean is they didn't need this sort of thing. They didn't need... Uh, amplification for their voices because the surroundings gave it to them. Supposedly, I haven't been there, but supposedly, if you stand on one of these mounts, you can call out to the other and people can hear what you're saying. It's an acoustically good space. And so all of the people are gathered into this place. The people come in. We have Gerizim on one side, Ebel on the other. Shechem is in the center. And at the center, the Ark of the Covenant with the Levitical priests comes in. You see the people arranged around the Ark of the Covenant, which signifies the presence of God. The people are arranged in two sort of squadrons on two sides. They're divided in half so that they can do a kind of antiphonal reading, a sort of responsive thing. On one side... The people are commanded, and you see this in Deuteronomy 27, on one side, the people voice the promises, the blessings of the covenant. And on the other side, the curses. So on Mount Gerizim, the people on Gerizim, they shout the blessings. And on Ebel, those people, they shout the curses. So we've got the curse shouters. Doesn't sound quite right. The curse shouters on Ebel. We have the blessing shouters. Over here on Gerizim, in the middle, we have the Ark of the Covenant, the Levitical priests, the officers, the, the judges, the elders of the people all gathered there. But there's something else as well. There's a stone that has been covered in plaster, and on that stone, Joshua has written the Decalogue. He's written the law that was given to Moses. It's been written so that all of the people can see it. It's a kind of testimony to the law that's there, again, centered in their worship. But there's something else as well. There's an altar. What we began with was an altar. That altar is not where you think it would be. If you study the scene and, and, and you like symmetry, it seems like right at the center would be the place to put the altar, but that's not where the altar goes. The altar goes over here on Ebo. It goes on the mount where the curses are pronounced. It's interesting. I think there's a logic to that. So we have the blessings shouted on one side, the curses shouted the other. At the center, the ark, the testimony to the law written out, and then we have an altar on Ebel, the, the mount where the curses are shouted out. And what does that mean? What does it mean, the situation of that altar? It's interesting to think about. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, the sort of famous Christian worldview thinker, wrote a book about the book of Joshua, Joshua and the Flow of History, Biblical History. And in thinking about this scene, he says that the placement of that altar 
is significant. Because when you see the scene, and you hear, okay, there's blessings for obedience being shouted out here. There are curses for disobedience being shouted out here. What you could walk away with is a kind of moralistic lesson, right? So what we want to be is the good people. If we live our lives well, then we will receive the blessings. But Schaefer says the placement of the altar over on the mountain of, of curse is a reminder to the people. It's a strong reminder, he says, that the people are not going to be perfect, that they would therefore need an altar. They would need an altar as they went forth. Because the approach to God must always be through sacrifice and not through the keeping of the law or any other work man may himself do. The approach to God is always through sacrifice. So although we see the object lesson of the blessings and the curses, obedience and disobedience, the lesson to draw from it isn't, oh, well, I'm one of the good people, I, I should be over here. The lesson to draw is, ah, the curses will rightly fall on me. I need a sacrifice to speak for me. And so the altar of sacrifice is situated there on the mount of the curse. And the way that the altar is constructed is interesting as well, because they're told specifically to gather stones that are uncut, that have been unhewn. So they're not looking for fine masonry in this altar. This is something that's going to be sort of in the raw, unprocessed. Why is that? John Calvin said the reason why, he thinks, is because God wanted to show that there was an impermanence to this altar. This wasn't something being set up for people's worship perpetually. So it was kind of put together without uh, fancy workmanship, that sort of thing, to symbolize that. Um, Francis Schaeffer says, well, the fact that the, the stones are uncut is interesting because what that suggests is that the value of this altar has nothing to do with the work of human hands. So when you approach this altar, you wouldn't see something and say, wow, no, that was skillfully done. I've seen other altars, and they weren't nearly as nice as this one. Here's where I will worship. Nothing like that. Nothing like that. Another commentator, Bertrand, the least of these, sees a another angle here as I think about it. Uh, these stones were unhewn, untouched, uncut by human skill, like the work of atonement that would take place on the altar. So that as we look at this altar made of stones in the raw, made the way God put them in place, before human creativity had been able to give them any shape or form, what we see there is that the work of atonement, the sacrifice necessary to avoid the curse that comes from disobedience, that is the work of God alone. And no man can add a cut. No man can plane a surface or burnish the, the, the surface to make it more attractive, unnecessary. Beside the point, God alone does this work. It's interesting, too, as we see the scene, there's a lot of reading of the law that takes place. As you imagine, hearing words like Joshua read the law, he read all of it, he didn't leave any of it out. You start thinking, I'm glad I wasn't there. This sounds like a really long church service. 
I hope nobody was like cooking back home and, and hoping to get out on time because obviously the readings went long, that sort of thing. But the order is interesting. The order is interesting when the word is read after the sacrifices. Remember, in order to approach God, we approach God through sacrifice. We can't enter into his presence uh, as we are. The, the, the altar is necessary in order to approach him. And it's interesting here that the reading of the law, that the word of God being proclaimed, comes after the sacrifice. The call to obedience comes after the sacrifice, which tells us something about what's going on here. Obedience follows reconciliation. It is not the ground of reconciliation. We are not at peace with God because we have kept his law. If we know Christ, it's not because we were pretty good. It's not because he looked down and thought, these are the kind of followers I need. Nothing like that. He reconciles us, and our obedience follows in gratitude. In gratitude. The antiphonal blessings and curses remind the people that if they obey, they will be blessed. And if they disobey, they will be cursed. There is that. There is that. But it's important to see it in the context of the life of the people of God. It's not what determines whether or not they are the people of God. It's what determines whether they will be blessed or cursed, whether they obey or disobey. Essentially, the lesson of Achan's disobedience now being enacted. It doesn't have to be that way. God is saying, you don't have to do without me. You don't have to not be able to stand in the presence of your enemies. Keep my word. Live in my word and you will be blessed. The people heard from Mount Gerizim the blessings which would come to them if they kept God's law and from Ebel the curses which would fall upon them if they did not. It's as if they were being asked, which mountain do you want to live on? The mountain of curses or the mountain of blessing. It's ironic, though, that the Samaritans in the north, when they came to build their temple, they built it not on Ebel, they built it on Gerizim, the mountain of blessing. Um, it was a ruin by Jesus' day. That temple was no longer there. But it's interesting where they chose to build it, not where the altar had been placed, but where all the blessings of obedience were cataloged. Then comes the reading of the word. Towards the end of our text, see Joshua proclaiming the word by mouth. He reads it aloud so people hear it. They see it with their eyes written for them on the stones, and they hear it proclaimed to them orally. The word was meant to be read. It was meant to be presented to the people in this way, to fill their ears in this way. And then the last verse, this is the one that uh, takes away all hope, if you were hoping for it to be a brief service of covenant renewal. He reads it all. He doesn't leave any of it out. It's interesting to think about what it is that he's reading. Different commentators have speculated. It's clearly more than the Ten Commandments. If you go back to Deuteronomy 27, the blessings and the curses, uh, the curses are actually specified. The blessings are not. We don't know the text of the blessings. Only the curses are recorded. But they're working from a, a written document that they've gotten from Moses. But they're referring back to things that happened in, in the last book of the Bible. So we're in Joshua. They're referring back to things that were written down from Deuteronomy, and that's their script. That's their guidebook for what's taking place. And Joshua doesn't leave out a single word because all of it is necessary. All of it is authoritative. 
He's not skimming through the writings of Moses and deciding what's important. It's all there. Now, in Joshua 5, a few chapters ago, when we looked at the people crossing over the Jordan, we saw that the first thing when they crossed the Jordan is they observed the two Old Testament sacrifices, circumcision and Passover. And there's a connection in those things to the, the ones who had gone before. Right? In circumcision, we're connected back to Abraham, where that began, and in Passover, to the days of Moses, where that was instituted. And when we looked at Joshua 5, uh, what we talked about was the continuity of the sacraments between Old Testament and New Testament to show that there's a, a thread running through Scripture, continuity in the work of God. Now here, at the end of chapter 8, a similar kind of situation. What we see here, there are echoes, there are ties back to the days of Abraham in the location where the promise is made, and back to Moses who gave the instructions for what has just observed, been observed, but the continuity that I want you to think about isn't the continuity of the sacraments, it's the continuity of the word. The continuity of the word. Because what happens here is word-rich. It is full of scripture. And it reminds us that the people gathered at Shechem were, first and foremost, people of the word. They were people of God's word. And if we follow after them as the people of God, then we too must be people of the word. Now, who are the people of the word? How can you recognize people of the word? What are their, their common characteristics? Well, people of the word obviously know the word. People of the word know the word. Joshua has written the word. For their eyes. He reads it aloud so that they will hear it in order that they will know that they will have the knowledge of what God has commanded. They're meant to know. In the New Testament, Paul, in 1 Timothy 4, gives instructions to Timothy as a pastor, as a teacher of the people of God. And he says to Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So knowledge requires training. The church is, this is anachronistic, but, but we're a learning community. We're meant to be growing in knowledge. We're meant to be being trained in the word so that we grow in knowledge. Now, training is training in what Paul calls the words of the faith. It's very important that the words of the faith be the words that Timothy speaks, that he shares, that he teaches, the words of the faith. If you ask yourself, where do I find the words of the faith? What are the words of the faith? Well, obviously, the words of the faith are, are the word. and you might have noticed there's a lot of them. And it's, it's rare that you meet someone who actually has a, a commanding knowledge of, of all of it. So where do you begin? Well, the words of the faith have been preserved by the people of God in the form of creeds, in the form of confessions of faith. There's a reason why when we confess our faith, as we will do later in the service, we turn so often to these ancient words of faith these summaries of the teaching of Scripture that have been passed down from generation to generation. This morning, it'll be the Nicene Creed. These are words of faith 
attesting to us what the teaching of Scripture is, the teaching of the apostles of Jesus Christ. There must be training in the words of faith, and those words include what Paul calls good doctrine, which is meant to be followed. Good doctrine, good teaching coming from the word. In law and the legal system, we often say ignorance is no defense. We often live our lives as if where God is concerned, it is. And we don't have much zeal or encouragement to grow in knowledge. Sometimes it seems as if the task is too great. I can't possibly know it all, therefore, why even start? Why try? But people of the word know the word. People of the word are immersed in the word, learning about the word. People of the word do more than that, though. The good doctrine that Paul refers Timothy to is doctrine meant to be lived. It's meant to be put into practice. You're meant to do it. People of the word live the word. Joshua was told this right away. We saw this in chapter 1 when Joshua was being given his commissioning by God. He was told, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. The covenant of grace is unconditional. God's promise of grace, of salvation to us is unconditional. It's not, if you're good enough, I will save you. You can't possibly be good enough. But within that unconditional promise, God also speaks of blessings and curses. He speaks of obedience and disobedience. And uh, this is, I mentioned Francis Schaeffer's book earlier, uh, the subtitle, The, The Flow of Biblical History. This is where he sees that flow, the continuity of that unconditional promise, but also the ebb and flow of obedience and disobedience that you see in the life of the people of God. If you read your Old Testament, it's mostly disobedience, with occasional uh, outbreaks of obedience for a, a small time. And so you see these blessings and these curses worked out in relation to this. So both of those things are true. It's important to live the word. Important to live the word. We haven't been saved in order to do nothing been saved in order to be conformed to the image of Christ. Some of you may have read Susanna Clark's huge novel, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. If you haven't, this is basically a grown-up Harry Potter. Uh, brilliant book with lots of historical footnotes that are all completely invented. It's all nonsense because it's a history of English magic, the, the use of magic in England. And one of the things I love about this book is that the first part of the book is all of these people who are studying and trying to revive magic in the realm of England around the age of Napoleon. So it's all of these sort of Jane Austen type people using their magical books and they meet in societies, they come together and they they present papers on magic, that sort of thing. But the one thing they don't do is magic. They call themselves theoretical magicians because they are also gentlemen and doing magic is too much like doing, you know, work, which you wouldn't do if you were a gentleman, a man of leisure. They don't sully themselves with the practice of the art. They devote themselves to the knowledge, to the knowledge. Now, she doesn't say in the book that they're Presbyterians. But we've known a few theoretical 
theoretical theologians who excel in knowledge, but not so much in, in the practice, in the doing. And the word doesn't come to us and say, you know what, find the thing that, that relates to you and, and, and sort of commit yourself to that. And if it's knowledge, then do that. And, and, and you know, if, if it's obedience, then do that. The knowledge is meant to lead to practice, to the doing of the word. The word isn't there just to sort of give you knowledge. It's to give you knowledge in order to live. So people of the word must know the word, but they must also do the word. And thirdly, they must speak the word. They must speak the word. In Joshua 8, we see a public ceremony, public worship, and where the word of God is proclaimed. It's erected publicly. They, they put the Decalogue up so the people who pass this way will see it there. They will see the word of God being proclaimed as a public witness. The word isn't just for them personally. Joshua doesn't walk around whispering it in their ears. This is something that is front and center in the life of the people. They hear the word and they speak the word. The word is for the whole community. It's for everyone as well. Everybody is speaking the word. At the end of our passage, we see that it's all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. The word is for them all to speak and to do, and to know. It's for them all. Everyone in this community, those who came, those who have been brought into the community during the course of their, their entry into Canaan, everyone is now governed by, defined by, enriched by, nourished by the Word. They are people of the Word and the community of the Word. Now, how can we be people of the word if we don't know the word? It's impossible. It's impossible. No matter how sincere we are, if we don't apply ourselves to knowledge, uh, we don't know what we're meant to be doing or not doing. In the same way, we can't be people of the word if we do not live the word. We don't put our knowledge into practice and live the life of faith. It's hypocrisy to claim to be people of the word. We cannot be people of the word if we don't speak the word. If our mouths are not full of the word, as Joshua's was, if we don't love it enough to speak it into the, the life of the world around us. The answer to the question of the woman at the well, how do I know who's right? How do I know which way to go? How do I know how to worship is the word? That's how you know. It's true that we're divided by so many different questions and so many different uh, philosophies and interpretations. And yet, it's not true that these are unanswerable questions, that these are unresolvable questions. Many of the things that we see as the unanswerable questions would be answerable if we just knew. If we just knew what the Word actually said. The Word has the power to answer these questions. And it would help this sermon a lot if when Jesus had been asked, where should we worship, Jesus had said, well, this is an easy one. You should be reading your Bible. What's wrong with you? Don't you Samaritans read Scripture? It's not like Jesus never answered this way. 
whenever Pharisees or Sadducees or, or anybody came to Jesus and, 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 and gave him these hard questions, Jesus would answer, and his answers, he would base things on, on phrases in the Old Testament or, or, or verb tenses, like really subtle stuff. But he would say, you call yourself a teacher of Israel and you don't know this? You know, he was like shocked that they didn't see these fine-grained implications. They were meant to know. They were meant to have knowledge, more knowledge than we can imagine. But sadly here in Shechem at the well, that's not how Jesus answers. He wasn't trying to help my sermon reach a, a tidy conclusion. Instead, he says to her, nah, it's not here, it's not there. The time is coming, the time is here. When the true worshipers will worship God in spirit and in truth. They will worship God in spirit and in truth. So while I've emphasized some continuity, they had the word, we had the word, there's also some change. There's some development. Worship's changing in the days of Jesus. He's saying now it's time to worship God in spirit and in truth. And the problem of our times is that we change one of the words that Jesus speaks. Jesus is to worship in spirits and in truth. And what we hear is to worship in spirit or in truth. Because it seems to us, you typically have one or the other. You just have to decide which one matters to you. You can worship in spirit, which is really joyful and emotionally fulfilling, or you can worship in truth, which is pretty dead and rational and uh, unuplifting. And you just have to decide which one, because it seems like like one inevitably quenches the other, chokes out the other. You can't have these two things together. Jesus doesn't see it that way. Jesus doesn't say, when, when the woman asks, where should we worship? He doesn't say, hey, it doesn't matter, woman. Why are you asking questions like this? All God cares about is if you're sincere. He could care less where you worship. These things aren't important to God. No, it's important. It matters. And Jesus says we must worship in spirit and truth. Like there's a true worship, but there's a false worship. It's possible to get this wrong, which we don't want to do. So how do you get it right? Spirit and truth go together because the truth comes from the spirit. Jesus is talking here in a way that... that doesn't sound like it backs up my point, but I'm going to argue it does. Because if you want to know the truth, it is revealed in God's word. How did that come to be? It came to be through the, the Spirit. The truth has been revealed by the Spirit. And if you want to know how the Spirit operates, it's explained in the word, the truth. They go together, word, spirit, truth, all together. People of the word are people of the book. People of the book. Christians cherish the book. Literacy, interpretation, hermeneutics. It was Christians in the United States who passed the first public school law. It was called the Old Deluder Satan Act because it was intended to educate people so that they would not be deluded by Satan, so that they would be educated enough to read and be on their guard, so they wouldn't be left in ignorance. Uh, there's a connection between knowledge, between learning, and the word. Christians are people of the book. How would we know the truth? 
without finding it revealed to us in Scripture. But people of the Word are also people of Christ. Christ is the Word made flesh. Christ is the living Word. The highest, ultimate revelation of God to man and in man is Jesus Christ. And it was Jesus Christ, the Word, who spoke the Word at the well that pointed this woman and pointed us to the right place to look when we struggle. There's no conflict between being people of the book, being people of Christ, because this book declares Christ to us. In Shaver's book on Joshua, he acknowledges that so much has changed since the days of Joshua. And we've seen this a little bit ourselves as we've worked through the book, that there are so many things that people did then that we wouldn't dream of doing now things that shock us that didn't shock them, and probably vice versa as well. The times have changed. And yet, Schaefer points to three changeless factors. Because as we read the book of Joshua, there are three things that haven't changed. Things that were true for the people of God then and remain true for us now. The first is the written book. Like them, we have a written book. We have a Bible to turn to, to to guide us as they had the writings of Moses. The second factor is the power of God. Like them, we too are on a journey where God is showing his power to us. We're seeing the power of the Spirit and changing us and bringing us to life. The power of God that was so evident then hasn't gone anywhere. It remains evident today. It's not that they lived in an age of miracles and we don't. The scripture says that every time a sinner dead in sins comes alive in Christ, a miracle has taken place. Contrary to all expectation and the laws of nature, human nature, it's all been overturned miraculously by the Spirit. That power remains the same. There's a third changeless factor, supernatural leader. We were introduced at the end of Joshua 5 to the supernatural leader of the conquest, the commander of the armies of the Lord, who I argued could be seen legitimately as a pre-incarnate vision of Christ. We too have a supernatural leader, the same supernatural leader who guides us. We have the same book that they had. We have the same power of God that they had and the same leader that they had, but with a difference. It's the same, but it's also more. We have what they had, but we have so much more. They had a taste, a little bit. They had the Pentateuch. They had the law. They had hints at what was to come. We have this completed revelation. We have more. They had the power of God. We have it even more more fully revealed, more fully active, the Holy Spirit in our lives. They had a leader whose name they did not know. They followed one whose identity, as it were, was concealed from them. We follow a leader whose name we know, whose name we bear upon us. 
we follow Jesus Christ, who is the great commander of salvation, who leads us and guides us. This word has been more fully revealed, the spirit more fully at work, and the Savior more fully revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. If we're going to be people of the word, we must be people of Christ, people who follow him, who seek to be shaped in his image through his word. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.